0: All right, you guys will go ahead and begin making your way back to your seats. Thank you guys for being willing to talk. Um, and uh, thank you for everybody this morning. Cabell, thank you for sharing. David Elmer, thank you for playing and the rest of the crew. Uh, Wendy and uh, Maddie, thank you guys for sharing. Um, One of the values here at Seven Hills Fellowship is every member a minister, every member a minister. And the idea of that is that we really believe that the church is healthier when the people in the church are acting as the church, not simply attending the church. And so uh, we're a little bit messy sometimes as a result of that, Uh, but I think in the long run, um, we are much healthier as a result. Uh, Before we jump into the sermon today, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray and uh, then we'll begin. Father, thanks so much for inviting us into your presence and Father, I thank you already um, just for the songs that we've sung that affirm your goodness and your holiness and your love for us. Father, we thank you uh, for the words that Cabell spoke, Father, and again, the reminder that despite um, suffering and hardship and all of those things that break us, Father, um, that we can still believe that you're good because of your son, Jesus, and because uh, you give us um, godly friendships to proclaim uh your love for us and so father i just pray father that that we would hear those messages today father that that you would overcome our self-doubt and our self-loathing and our distraction with a message that is loud and clear that is that you love us that you're our good father and you care for us and that you do love us in jesus name we pray amen
1: speaking of speaking of My parents always used to do this skit where they would say, don't listen to the words we sing, just listen to the way that we sing them. Um, The opposite of that this morning. (laughs) 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 Hey, Adam, our secret's safe, but I hope the world will learn go tend to even the garden crying but pay attention to these words if it ain't fear that holds us it's fear that tears us down
0: Dave's got a bad cold this morning, but that was a good rendition. Thank you. That's a, you can clap him. Yeah, let's give David a hand. <clears throat> so the song that David Elmer just played is a song called Hey Adam by Mandolin Orange. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Spotify. And like all songs and all poetry, it requires some interpretation. And so as you could hear, as David sang the word, there's there's clear biblical imagery in that song. And now I happen to know that this little group, Mandolin Orange, is not explicitly Christian, and I know that the intent of their song doesn't exactly match up with our orthodox view of Christianity, but that doesn't mean that they haven't gotten something right uh, in the lyrics to that song. Um, One of the things that they're doing there is they're acknowledging the brokenness that's evidenced by Adam's fear. And they're acknowledging the brokenness by acknowledging Eve's tears. And the answer to those fears and those tears is to remember that our Father loves you always, right? The question, of course, I think is, where do they get this idea of God as a loving Father? Where do we get that idea? And what does it even mean? You know, we have a tendency to think, well, that's the way everybody, every religion views God, surely, right? But the truth is it's not. In the Baha'i faith, um, God is considered the source and the existence of all reality, but he's not considered a father. In Hinduism, in uh, their holy writings, there's one quote that says, I'm I'm the father of this world, the mother, the dispenser, and the grandfather. And there's this idea, again, in Hinduism, that God is sort of at least the origin of all things. In Islam, Islam doesn't forbid using the term father in reference to God, but it doesn't actually propagate it or encourage it or even really use it. There are a couple of narratives um, of the Islamic prophet Muhammad in which he compares the mercy of God toward his worshipers as that of a mother, actually, to her infant child. But there's not really a picture of God as a father. Buddhism is actually much more of a philosophy than a religion, and so it doesn't actually address any one God at all. It addresses demigods. And in fact, part of what Buddhism does is actually reject the idea that God is a creator And so the question is, again, where do we get this idea of God as a loving God, much less a loving Father? The answer to where mandolin orange and even our culture gets this idea of God as a loving Father is from Jesus. That's where it came from, right? God was not considered loving. He was not considered a Father. And what's interesting is that Jesus refers to God as our Father over 160 times in the New Testament, Right? When someone tells you something 160 times, they're trying to get a message across, right? What's interesting is Paul then picks that up from Jesus, and Paul uses this term as God as our Father over 40 times in his writings, and today we're going to very, very briefly take a look at even what this means. And so we're going to not be able to talk about lots of things that it means, but we're going to focus on three things. We're going to focus on the idea of God as a Father, that it means protection, that it means provision, and that it means intimacy. Protection, provision, and intimacy. The fatherhood of God, again, means lots of other things. This could easily be a book. It could be another sermon series. But we're just going to focus on those three. The first thing we're going to look at is the fact that when we think of God as a father, and when Jesus spoke of God as a father, he was talking about a father who protects us. Listen to Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care? In other words, God's not going to let anything happen to you unless He wills it, and it's ultimately for your good and for His glory. Verse 30, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, the truth is that theologians, as well as psychologists, tell us very clearly that each of us moves into the world in a default position of fear, right? We move into this world from a default position of fear. We're terrified of being rejected socially, right? We're terrified of being invisible. That's why social media is such, we have such a love-hate relationship with it because in this format of social media, we can very quickly be rejected or we can very quickly be invisible when no one responds to what it is that we have to say. We're afraid of cancer. We're afraid of car wrecks. We're afraid of Russia. We're afraid of conservatives, We're afraid of liberals. We're afraid of neo-Marxists and neo-fascists. We're afraid of the economy crashing and hurricanes and mass shootings. We're afraid, terrified of not measuring up, of not being enough or as much as we should be. We're afraid of being too much for someone to handle. We're afraid of being too much for someone to accept or too much for someone to love. Deep down inside, what we long for is to feel safe to feel cared for, to be protected, so much so that we can move out into the world in confidence and strength instead of in terror. There's a a man named John Ortberg who's a pastor out in California. He and his wife moved out there and uh, started a church um, so they could start a church, but also so they could surf a little bit. John's an avid surfer and his wife is now too. And there's a book that he wrote recently called I Like You More If You Were More Like Me. And in it, he talks about a little encounter he had when he was surfing. He said this, A few weeks ago, when I was out surfing, there was no one else in the water except for a huge guy practicing martial arts on the beach. After I'd been out a little while, a tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere. I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. He pulled his little board right up next to mine. He was so small, he hardly needed a surfboard. He could have uh, stood up in the ocean on a frisbee. He told me his name was Shane. He asked me how long I'd been surfing, and I asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years,' he said. "'How old are you?' I asked. Eight. (laughs) "'Then he said, "'What I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful "'and you meet a lot of nice people out here.' "'We talked a little while longer, "'and then I asked him, "'How'd you get here, Shane?' "'My dad brought me,' he said. "'And then he turned around "'and waved at the nearby empty beach. "'The Goliath doing martial arts waved back. "'Hey, son,' he called out. "'And then I knew why Shane was so at home in the ocean. "'It wasn't his size.' It wasn't his skill. It was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching, and his father was pretty big. Shane wasn't really alone at all, and neither are we. You know, what if we could see God that way, right? What if you had an unshakable confidence that God loved you and he wasn't going to let anything happen to you that wasn't ultimately going to be good for you How would you go out into the world? How would you move out into the world knowing that God is a good father, that he loves you, that he's protecting you? Some of you were lucky enough to be protected. Maybe it was from a neighborhood bully. Maybe it was from a stray dog. Maybe your dad protected you from a mean older sibling or a dangerous relative. But unfortunately, it's also very likely, if not maybe even more likely, that many of you experienced fathers who didn't protect you when they should have, right? Maybe they were gone, maybe they were distracted, maybe they were selfish, or maybe they were just scared, maybe they were cowards. But their failure to protect you ended up creating a wound in you that exists even to this day, and I would argue that their failure to protect you impacts your view of God even this morning. And so this idea of God as a protector sounds kind of right, but kind of wrong at the same time partly because we begin with our earthly fathers and look at God instead of beginning with God and looking at our earthly fathers. There's a man named John Edwards, not the theologian, and he was talking about believing in God's goodness and his protection despite his own relationship with his father, and he said this. He said, what changed it all for me was a recalibration. It took a reorientation for me to move forward in trusting the Lord and calling him father. What do I mean? Instead of looking at my dad and then looking back at God, I learned to look at God first, and I realized if God wasn't my first source of fatherhood, I was always going to be off balance. If I didn't start with God, then he would always be the replica rather than the original, right? Part of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that God is the father that we should have had, and he is a father who loves you and offers to protect you. Remember that our father loves you. Second thing we see in relation to Jesus calling God our Father. It's not just protection, but it's this idea of provision. It's this idea that God takes care of you. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, "'Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying,' One of the things that you see from the very beginning of Scripture, even back in Genesis chapter 3, is that, again, we doubt that God is good, we doubt that He loves us, we doubt that He's for us, we doubt that we can trust Him, we doubt ultimately, we think that He's holding out on us in some way, and that's really the way that Satan tempted Eve initially. He said, did God really say that? And what he was trying to get her to do was to go, wait a minute, maybe God can't be trusted, right? And and then he kind of goes on and says a few other things, and essentially what he's insinuating or sort of putting into her mind is this question of, can you really trust him? Is he holding out on you? Does he really have your best interest in mind? And of course, we know how Eve and then Adam answered that question. And our response since the fall has really either been to respond with fear or with pride, right? Let me explain. So pride says... I want to determine for myself what is good. I want to determine what is right and what is true. I'm going to take care of myself. That's what pride ultimately says. Fear says exactly the opposite. Fear says, I have to take care of myself. I have to decide for myself what's right and what's true, because if I don't take care of myself, then nobody will. But Jesus here makes it clear that God loves you and that he cares for you precisely because he is your loving father. He's a loving father that should have cared for you, that should have provided for you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about God's love for us, especially as a loving father. He says this, he says, "'You asked for a loving God, you have one. "'The consuming fire himself, "'the love that made the worlds, "'persistent as the artist's love for his work "'and despotic as a man's, man's love for a dog,' Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, and inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their Creator's eyes. Part of what C.S. Lewis is saying there is saying the love that God has for you isn't this theoretical love, it's not this distant love, but rather it's a passionate love like an artist's love for their work, right? Like a man's love for his wife, like a father's love for his child. What if it's true? What if it's true that God loves you and that he is protecting you and that he is providing you with exactly what you need? What if that's true? If you believe that to be true, then you just, you really wouldn't actually worry as much. You'd wor- move out into the world. You'd move into challenging situations, trusting that God's going to come through, that He's going to do what needs to be done, that He's going to provide you with what you need in that moment, in that situation. You would approach God also, if you believe that to be true, asking Him for anything that you need. You'd come to Him with confidence. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, The child asks the father whom he knows. Thus, the essence of Christian prayer is not general adoration, but definite, concrete petition. The right way to approach God is to stretch out our hands and ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. Part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying there is he's saying, if you believe that God is a good father and that he loves you, that you'll come to him like a child and that you'll have your hands out and you'll ask him for everything that you need. Remember, our father loves you. Protection, provision. What else does Jesus mean by this idea of calling God our father? finally and ultimately in this talk anyway, it means intimacy. Listen again to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus again is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. So many of us, if not most of us, do not and did not have intimate relationships with our fathers. In fact, it's mostly and probably likely that the opposite was true. Because when I think of human fathers, I think of men distracted by work, Or by college football or some menial task around the house, mostly disinterested in connecting deeply at an emotional level with their children, or even worse. Elton John, in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine recently, um, had this to say. Speaking and reflecting on fathers and his father, he says, They wouldn't hold you, they wouldn't say they loved you. I was afraid of my father, I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time now, and I'm still trying to prove things to him. Asked what he meant, Elton John replied, I still do things and say, Dad, you would have loved this. Elton's father died in 1997 without ever seeing him play live. His father physically touched him most when he was beating him. My mom always says, that's just the way we did it in those days, and it didn't affect you. Elton says... "Uh, And then he goes on to say, what are you talking about? It affects me every day, right? And that's unfortunately, most of us have had a similar relationship with our fathers, right? Not one of intimacy, but one maybe of fear, of distance, of distraction. But what's interesting is that doesn't seem to be the relationship that Jesus had with his father at all. In fact, Jesus was always slipping away to be alone with his father. He painted this painfully vulnerable and intimate picture of God in the story of the prodigal son where the father runs to greet his wayward child. And Jesus genuinely seemed stunned and shocked on the cross when he proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As if separation from his father was actually the most painful suffering of all. And it's into this intimacy that Jesus invites us with his father. Do you believe that God desires that level of intimacy with you? Whether you've been good or bad, whether you've been seeking him or whether you haven't been seeking him, what you need to know is that he's seeking after you because like any good father, he loves you and pursues you because he wants to walk with you and he wants you to know him. Back to C.S. Lewis again. C.S. Lewis talks about how much God loves us when he says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Right? He's, he says that The concept of this idea that God loves you is a weight or it's a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. I've mentioned numerous times now the book by Cormac McCarthy called The Road, and I've recommended the book, recommended the movie, because I think it's fantastic. And essentially the reason it's fantastic is it really asks the question and then answers the question, how far would a father go um, to protect, to provide, child? And the answer is all the way. And in the end of the book, there's a final scene where the father has walked halfway across the country with his son in this post-apocalyptic world. He's dying of some unknown disease, and he lays on the beach, and with his last breath, he says to his son, he says, uh, he says, He says, you have my whole heart. He says, you have my whole heart. You always did, right? What if we remembered that? What if we believed it was true about God, that he loved us so much that he sent his son to earth to pursue us, his lost, fearful, wandering wayward children what if what if we have his whole heart what if we always what if we always did this morning as you look around the room you see these tables with bread and wine on my right your left and bread and grape juice on the left hand side and uh, and it's this meal we call the lord's supper and jesus instituted it um when he spent one of his final evenings final evening in fact with the disciples and this meal represents all sorts of things um It represents um, Jesus' death and our cleansing through his death. It represents that. It represents adoption. It represents all these things. But one of the primary things that this meal represents is that if you trust in Jesus alone as your Savior, God's Son, then God invites you to the family table. He reminds you that you're part of the family. And if you're part of the family, then you can believe and know and trust that God loves you, that he cares for you. And that this meal represents that in God's eyes you are now completely clean, past, present, and future because God took all of your brokenness and he placed it on his son and punished his son in your place so that when God looks at you now, he sees you not only as perfectly clean but perfectly as a child of God. And this meal reminds us that our father loves us. I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna read the words of institution and then pray and I'm gonna simply ask that you take a moment And when you're ready, that you get up. And that if again, if you're a follower of Christ, if you trust in him alone for your salvation, that you take this bread and you dip it in this wine and that you are reminded and that you remember that your father loves you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, this um, truth that you are a good father and that you love us seems to be maybe the hardest thing to deeply believe. Because if we did believe it, we'd stop trying to earn your love by being good. And if we did believe it, we'd quit running from you. And so, Father, I pray that through this meal today, through your Spirit, through the words of everyone who's spoken this morning, Father, through the words of the songs, that the truth that that you love us and that you've done all that's required for us to be made right with you through your Son, Jesus, Father, that that truth would be louder than every other claim to truth that enters into our minds or our ears. So, Father, I pray this morning that through this meal that we would be reminded, that we would remember that you're our good Father and that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.